All right, so there should be an outline in uh, the bulletins. Thank you. Uh, and we're just going to go over this morning some basic hamartiology. So I like the, there's a group of about six of us, I think six or eight of us, that switch off um, doing the speaking on the 930, and we usually send a text to each other and be like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And every time someone sends me that, I just say, I'm just going to talk about sin. So, and, then, and it's true. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the major thrust of the last couple times. Uh, and I don't know if that'll change for me. Uh, I don't wax as eloquently as, as some people in biblical imagery or uh, some more mature things. But one thing I do know about is sin. So I could tell you a lot about it. So does anybody know, I kind of gave it away, but uh, does anybody know what homartiology means? What is homartiology? It's the study of sin, right? comes from the Greek word uh, hamartia, uh, which is the more common word to uh, miss the mark. So, you know, hopefully this isn't, you know, for anybody like extremely new material, but, you know, I think it's, I can't remember it's first or second Peter, it's first Peter where he says about three times that I have no trouble reminding you, and that's a common theme of Paul to just continually remind people of the elementary things. But I want to look at it from, I'm calling this basic homardiology because our prime verse we're going to look at is Genesis 4, 1 through 8. And I think that gives us a good picture, a good framework of understanding for sin. Um, and we'll get into that. So we have to think rightly of sin. We have to think how God thinks of sin. So this is why we have to start at the foundations and, and move forward. And I think Genesis gives us a foundation work for that. So, Genesis 4, 1 through 8. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So, our main um, focus is going to be on sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary or against you, and you must rule over it, or you must master it. So, those are the first words, um, as far as Scripture goes, those are the, that's the first time God mentions sin, right? He actually, if you look at Genesis, the word sin, I forget what the Hebrew word is, um, is only mentioned three times in Genesis, and I think that's in Genesis 18, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, and then again in Genesis 49 or 50 towards the end, I think. I'm not certain, but it's only three times that the word sin is actually mentioned. So, just understanding that, we know that God is first laying a foundation when he comes and speaks to people. Uh, so, 
If you don't know, when God comes and talks to people, they should listen. They should take it very seriously. Uh, The majority of Scripture is um, God speaking through people to other people in in a mediating sense. So uh, we do know that through Romans, um, we should get this out of Genesis anyways, but we know that through Romans uh, chapter 5, that sin entered through one man, through one man sin entered the world, and thus we have death. So we're going to focus on um, what God is saying. We'll kind of go out of order a little bit and focus on uh, God's second um, second kind of words there, where sin is crouching at the door. We're going to look at the nature of sin what is the, uh, not just fundamental doctrine, but what is God trying to warn Cain about? So uh, where else do we see this language, in, especially in Genesis, that uh, sin is crouching at the door, its uh, desire is for you, or its desire is against you? Where else do we see that? Genesis 3. Genesis 3, in, in what context? Right, right, exactly. So, as we see that when Adam and Adam disobeyed and Eve uh, was deceived by the serpent, we see that we could see that that's the fall of man. That's when sin entered. It doesn't say didactically that that's when sin entered. It doesn't say in Genesis that now uh, sin is in the world. But we see uh, that then God is cursing. God curses the serpent. God curses the land. God curses the man and the woman, and. Uh, one of those curses is that there's going to be enmity between the man and the woman. What was once uh, supposed to be that the man and woman will be one flesh, working in unity and harmony together in one mind, now they're going to be striving against one another. There's going to be um, certain powers at play that causes them to work against and make it continually hard to fight. uh, There's going to be a continual fight uh, for unity. So, uh, the rest of the Genesis narrative, the whole of the Old Testament, shows that we are continually mastered by sin and that we must fight against it. If you want to get a general tenet of what the Old Testament is about, I usually just say people suck. That's generally what uh, I get out of the Old Testament, is that that God promises a seed, an offspring, um, that would one day come and crush the serpent, that would uh, defeat sin and death, and uh, we're continually looking for that seed and uh, that offspring, and that person does not come. We see different figureheads, different covenant heads come and go, and they all fail. Nobody has actually done very much in the way of, of mastering the serpent. So, and, you know, one of the things that God's saying to Cain is you must master sin. There's so one of the fundamental things I want to help us understand this morning and focus on is is that's a slave master relationship. Uh, if you were at RCF this Wednesday, we we're in Romans chapter six, and uh, no, I'm not lazy and just decided to make this teaching based off of our, our Romans series. I had this in mind first, and then we just providentially were in Romans chapter six. Uh, but it's all about being slaves to sin. It's all about um, a slave-master relationship. And I would think, this is, uh, I'm going to base this off of Scripture here in a minute, but it's, 
I would think that a mature Christian would uh, have more of a mindset of this is a slave-master relationship. What is mastering me, and what am I mastering? And that's the very Lord's, uh, our very Lord's words in John 8, 34. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So, uh, how many people sin this morning? Most of us have our hands up. <laughs> Everyone else is just either deceived or, or shy. So, uh, and it's not because, you know, I didn't want to, I woke up this morning and I thought the first thing was like, man, I wonder if I could just like pretend like I'm sick. And, and I was like, well, that's not a very godly thought. I should probably just get up and do what I need to do. And because uh, like every night I go to bed late and uh, Sundays I wake up earlier than every other day of the week. So and it's not just because, oh, I was just a little tired. It's, it's because sin wants to master me. Sin wants to get a hold of me and make me its slave and wants me to be obedient to it. So uh, that is how I think the mature Christian ought to think in the slave-master relationship. So the question is, I just want to say real quick to kind of take a little sidetrack, is what is sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers that question with, uh, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. So that was written quite a long ago. I like the New City Catechism answer. Uh, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So, uh, I don't think we're having RCF this week because of Ash Wednesday, but if you come the following week, Daniel's going to talk to you about how, uh, you know, we have our own ideas of sin, but it has to be rightly rooted in God's standard, what he thinks, and that is directly in conformity to his law. So back to slave-master relationship. Romans six sixteen and 20. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And then verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin. So Paul says it just as plainly here as, as our Lord did, that we are enslaved to sin. If you commit a sin, it's not because you had a little wrong action or you just thought a little wrongly, it's because sin is crouching at the door and it wants to master you. And we have this inward desire. You know, I think what Paul brings out is that we, uh, the next problem is then we willingly submit to it. We want to be mastered by sin. We want to obey sin, right? Second Peter 2.19, um, here Peter's talking about false prophets and false teachers in the church who are promising freedom, um, in various ways, and you can kind of read that in context on your own time. Uh, but I love this verse. For they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So he doesn't say whatever overcomes a person, to that he needs to try a little bit harder, or that's what he needs to think and meditate on a little bit more to hopefully overcome in his own power. He's saying whatever overcomes a person, that is what he's enslaved. Um, so, and then Galatians 5.1, uh, 
Uh, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Right? Christ actually came to set the captives free. So in order to have a right mindset of sin, you have to have a right mindset of what Christ's work is going to do and what Christ's work on the cross accomplished. Right? Does anybody remember uh, Luke 4, where uh, our Lord preached in Nazareth, what he quoted out of? Isaiah 61, right? Uh, he's received well at first because uh, he says, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me. And, you know, and, and one of the things he mentions or quotes from Isaiah 61 is that he has sent me to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives. So to have a right understanding of sin and your relationship to it, you have to understand that you are captive. You are held captive by sin. And that was... Uh, our Lord's warning to Cain, right? So how we ought to think. I probably could have made a better title for that part, but, um, you know, one of the narratives of Genesis and why I, I continually love reading and thinking about Genesis, especially one through four, is I, I think that through the whole tenet of Scripture, we see that that's the foundation for um, just about every major doctrine in in our Christian faith. I don't, um, from Trinitarianism, Trinitarianism to um, our doctrines of sin, to our doctrines of salvation, I think they're all uh, fundamentally covered in the first four chapters of Genesis. So I love just meditating on that, and that's why I want to bring this out of, of Genesis. So knowing that uh, we are slaves to sin, that we're held captive. There are certain things we can deduce from that, but I want to bring in um, especially uh, our Lord's uh, earthly ministry. And uh, if you guys, I'll probably bring this verse up like every, every time I get up here and talk. Matthew eleven twelve, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Right? What's the warning? What's the first part where he mentions sin in Genesis? Sin is what? Crouching at the door. What does that make you think? It's going to attack. It's ready to spring. Right? We're in a war. You can't take this lightly. Right? One of a... Though we do, right? That's the nature of sin. One of, I can't remember what proverb it is, but I quote this to myself almost every morning just to show you uh, how spiritual I am. Uh, one of the Proverbs, I think it's somewhere around 16 to 20, says that the sluggard is like a door on its hinges, rolling in his bed. 1624, thank you, John Luke. Uh, <laughs> and I quote that, I think about that every morning when I wake up and my first alarm goes off, and then I roll over, and I quote it, and I just, I'm just going to be like a hinge, and I roll back over. And I hope that one day... The Spirit of God awakens me so much that I'll be a morning person, but not yet. Until then, I'm going to continue to fight with that, with that verse. Right? So that should instantly give you a hint in Genesis of what's the nature of sin. Is that like we're in a fight. You have to think this way. We are being held captive. You have to think that way. You have to become violent. You don't overcome sin in a, in a passive sense. Right? What did... Uh, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Man? If your hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off, right? It doesn't say if your hand causes you to sin, put some gloves on it. Um, you know, uh, get an accountability partner to check in with your hand, slap it a little bit. He doesn't, he takes it very seriously. He wants you to get the seriousness of sin, right? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, get corrective lenses, see your optometrist, and maybe they can help. No, pluck it out. It's that serious, right? That's how we ought to think. That's how Christ came preaching. That's how all the prophets came preaching. And that was the warning that God gave to Cain, right? Um, so let's get into uh, some other words from our Lord. Mark seven fourteen through 23. Uh, let's see if I can maybe skip down a little bit. Yeah, I'll just skip down to verse 20. Um, and just kind of say, Jesus is handling people who are thinking in such a term through the Pharisees and other uh, uh, Jewish leaders at the time that the problem with sin wasn't inherent in them. The problem with sin is outside their environmentalist. You can change your environment and then you can root out sin. And he answers that and we can just skip to verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Uh, quick side note, does anybody read the... I've never really discussed this with anybody. I, I don't know if it's common or not, but this is just like a quick tangent. Does anybody read the Proverbs and think of foolishness as sin? Or just like it's just not unwise. Sin, right? Uh, and Jesus makes that clear. I'd love to speak more on that in the Proverbs. Love them. So, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person, right? So what was Cain's response? Cain's response was anger, violence, right? I don't actually think that was a wrong response. I think he should have been angry. I think he should have became violent. I think he handled it wrongly. I think he was uh, angry and violent towards the wrong thing. I don't think he should have killed his brother, uh, just to make that clear. Right? But, but I actually don't think uh, uh, him being angry, and I think his anger was rooted wrongly, and I think his violence was rooted wrongly, but I actually think... Um, you know, through our Lord's preaching, that he should have been angry at sin. He should have been angry. <laughs> uh, I'm getting angry at this microphone. Uh, he should have been angry at sin. He should have become violent against sin, but instead he, he became angry and violent elsewhere. So what do we know? I just want to kind of cover what do we know about Cain elsewhere in Scripture um, and his response and what we learn from it. So Hebrews 11.4 says, by faith Abel offered, I'm sorry, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So why wasn't Cain's gift acceptable to the Lord? Was it because he offered something fruit from the ground and, and Abel offered sheep? No. No, we know that later on in, in Leviticus, we set up there's 
grain offerings, there's wine offerings, there's, um, there's various offerings as, as the covenant expands. Why wasn't his offering acceptable to the Lord? His attitude and intention, it wasn't done by faith, right? By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, right? Cain's heart was not rooted in, in, in a relationship of faith to God, right? That's why Cain's gifts weren't acceptable to the Lord. Um, there's only two other places that Cain is mentioned in the New Testament. And the other one is 1 John 3, 9 through 12. Um, and I guess we've got time to read the whole thing. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for, God, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So it wasn't that, um, obviously Cain's deeds were evil and murder in uh, covetousness uh, in that sense. But even his, his ideas about how to sacrifice to God and, and what was pleasing to the Lord were rooted in, in a heart of evil. And then lastly, in Jude 3, uh, I'm sorry, Jude verses 3 through 4 and 8 through 11. Um, let's see. So I'm going to skip a little bit around here also. So Jude 3 through 4, he's talking about those people who have come in and, and commandeered and started to preach uh, another gospel, another faith. Right? And so let's go to, uh, and you can kind of see that in the last verse of, last part of chapter, verse 4, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by, by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Kor's bond, right? So those people who blaspheme the grace of the Lord are the ones who walk in the way of Cain. You guys see the connection there? They rely on dreams. They defile the flesh. There's all these other things that are apart from the grace of God, right? And I think when you take the apostolic hermeneutic and then go back into Genesis, we see that, that God was graciously offering to Cain uh, a way out um, of, his, of his sin. So here's the problem. Uh, God walked with Cain. God is the God who walked with him. God is the God who preceded the, the warning and, and actually came to Cain, right? And, and Cain's heart was, was not willing to listen. He was, uh, his instant reaction was, you know, after God says, why are you angry? 
And sin is crouching at the door. Be on your guard. Sin is ready to attack. And what's the next thing he, did? he does? Kills his brother, right? Uh, if you look in, I had a, I'd have to do more research on this, but if you look in the ESV, like especially in our pew Bibles, there's a little note in there. Uh, I think it believes it says that some of the Hebrew manuscripts would say that Cain led his brother out to the field instead of Cain spoke with his brother. So, um, you know, think about that. Like Cain had met with the Lord. God had came and talked to him, had warned him of the, the attacks of sin. And his seemingly instant response was uh, idolatrous murder against his brother. So the solution... Uh, so what is the solution? What is, what is God trying to tell us and what is he trying to teach us about sin and how we respond and what is our call? And this is fundamental to what is the gospel. So uh, often this is, I love this Colossians passage because this is often my response. This is often um, everyone's response, to be honest. Uh, if with Christ, Colossians 2 Uh, 20 through 22. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in proclaiming self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but, this is my emphasis added on the page, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Sin is a wicked, wicked master. And we can do certain things, and it is good to do certain things, to take precautionary measures, right? Uh, It's unfortunate. I don't know what the real statistics are, but, um, you know, I've worked with several men in in my life and, and battled in my life, but, you know, it's kind of surprising that Christians nowadays, Christian men, well, it's sort of surprising, I guess, knowing the nature of sin, it's not that surprising, that a lot of men struggle with pornography. And, you know, that's not to say that we shouldn't set up blockers and certain things, and those are all good things. But I think Paul says here, that actually, in a fundamental value, has no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. That just creates another barrier for me to jump through to get to that internet site or do whatever, right? Uh, bitterness, unforgiveness. Um, you know, I don't, uh, you know, it's really easy to put blockers and to help, you know, me not become bitter or take a proud spirit or do whatever. You know, there's certain precautions we can take. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't, but, but what Paul says here is there's, there's a, I think there's a fundamental understanding and, Um, response that we have to have that isn't an environmentalist response, isn't put up blockers, put up, do something, take, do, you know, do something outwardly first because the nature is in our flesh, right? Um, And, and you can apply that to, to every sin, right? Um, So what is the proper response? What is uh, God's saying through Cain, what is he teaching us about the, the nature of, of sin and what our response should be? Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what, what should Cain's response should have been? When God comes to him and, and he proceeds it by saying, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will I not accept you? But he's warning him, sin is crouching at the door and you must master it. And it wants to master you. His response should have been, God, have mercy on me. What, what am I going to do? You're telling me like sin is at the door and it's ready to attack and, and you want me to do something and master sin. Is that a joke? You want me to master sin? Yeah, right, God, like save me. <laughs> like that's not a real, like I don't see how I could master sin. I don't understand. Uh, that should have been Cain's response. Um, and because he says like, if you do well, will I not accept you? We have a high priest who causes us to be able to draw near to the throne of grace. Right? It was a little, uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe it was a little shocking. To me, um, I don't know, maybe starting about four weeks ago, I've had several people actually ask me about the Exodus uh, 9 and 19, sorry, Exodus 19 and Exodus 24 passage, uh, where Israel's response is, we will do all that the law has all that the Lord has said. And, uh, you know, it's one thing, you know, if, uh, and just had a couple of people question me, like, hey, have you ever heard that, like, you know, that that was like a blasphemous response, that was an improper response, and had three or four people ask me that. And uh, what should have, like, have you guys ever read the law? Like, no, this is like, do not covet. <laughs> <laughs> go. Good try, right? Uh, you know, it's, I could probably maybe live the rest of my life and, you know, I haven't exactly in the most strict sense, like, carved an idol and bowed down and worshipped it. Yet, um, I, you know, by the grace of the Lord, I won't. But I've, you know, if you rightly understand the law, like every day I wake up and I, I was idolatrous of my bed and sleep and I didn't want to get up this morning and, and I don't know if that will not be the case tomorrow. But of course that's a proper response or an improper response for anyone to say, I will do all that the law commanded. There's no way. That's the purpose of the law, to drive us to a savior that could do the law, right? And... and just to kind of make that Exodus passage a little bit more clear, before they received the Ten Commandments, they said it. They didn't even know it. <laughs> they say it twice. Uh, and then, you know, I don't know. Uh, this is kind of my own opinion here. Uh, you know, they don't know about the, the Levitical priesthood exactly. At that point, they're starting to, you know, the tabernacle had not even been built for several chapters, which might have been decades I'm not sure on the timeline, but uh, like offering sacrifices day and night, morning and evening, having an ironic priesthood, like, and to say you're not going to miss a day, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Uh, but I think in God's grace, in, that, in the Exodus narrative, he tells them before they receive the two tablets and, and their response is, we will do all that the law has commanded. 
that the Lord has said, that the Lord has commanded in Exodus 19.8. And then in Exodus 20, they get the, the Ten Commandments. And then there's a bunch of case laws for four chapters, well, three chapters. And then in Exodus 24.7, they say it again. Yeah, like we understand the law and I think we can do it. I don't think so. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, they don't, they don't do the best job. So, um, so your response has to be one of seeing our Savior as one who has fulfilled the law, knowing that, that sin is way too great of a power for us to, to conquer, for us to master. God calls us to master it. And through the grace of the Lord, if, if we throw ourselves on the feet of, of the, at the cross and on his grace, he will empower us to, to be sanctified. Um, somehow he will, <laughs> by the work of the Holy Spirit, but not out of my own will, not out of my own volition. Uh, I love Psalm 69. I, am, I saved enough time to read this whole thing uh, that's on your page. We're not going to read all of Psalm 69. It's 34 or 35 verses, but uh, I always, I keep this one fresh in my mind because I, you know, it's just something that the Lord has worked in me in my own life. Uh, when I read this, I was like, yeah, that pretty much describes me. I think that's a, that's a good response. Um, verses one, one through four, one through five, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out, with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Right? He's drowning and he's getting tired and God either saves him or he doesn't. He's crying out to God. He's not uh, trying to doggy paddle for a few more hours and conserve his energy. He's, He's crying out to God, save me. There's no hope for me unless the Lord would deliver me. Uh, though I think we're going to show you how this is Christological. Uh, this, although I think that would be a proper response, let's think in, in light of our Lord. So jumping to verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to me. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? This is a Christological, and then within Psalm 69, I think it's like 69.9, uh, we get where when Jesus was flipping tables in John 2, his disciples were reminded that the psalm said about him, zeal for your for the house. Zeal for the house of the Lord has consumed me, right? So multiple times that this psalm is, or at least a few times, directly referenced to Christ. So we're actually supposed to see Christ in light of how we're supposed to have faith. I think this is good to view, you know, the first part of, and how I viewed it for years, was that should be my response, and that's true, but that's because that was Jesus's response to the Father. His faith was one of, save me, O God, I'm surrounded by my enemies. The reproach has fallen on me, and everybody hates me. Verse 29. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. 
This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see, when the, I'm sorry, when the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Who are prisoners. So in Genesis, uh, to kind of wrap up here, you know, when the Lord comes to Cain, the first thing he says, he doesn't say first, though I went out of order for a reason, uh, you must master sin. That's not the first thing he tells him. The first thing God tells Cain is, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? We have a, a Lord and Savior who knows the captivity of sin, who is willing to warn us so that we would cry out to him by grace to receive his mercy day by day. But we have to see that sin is our master. It wants to control us. It wants to eat us alive. It wants to ruin our lives. And the only hope is thus, uh, to cry out to our Lord in faith and hope that he would save us. So, I uh, hope that gives you guys some real uh, basic homartiology, basic, fundamental. How does the Bible kind of... Um, how does, you know, especially in Genesis, start in teaching us about sin and then from there carry in, not just through the narrative of the Old Testament, but in our Lord's teaching in the Gospels, uh, the narrative and historical uh, gospel preached throughout Acts and through the epistles. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you and your throne that we would receive grace and mercy uh, by Jesus Christ, that you would apply that by the Holy Spirit, and you would cause our hearts to lift up praise and thanksgiving to you, and continually throw ourselves at the foot of the altar, that we would come to you with confidence uh, through Jesus Christ to find mercy. In your son's name, amen.